to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Hey, what are you working on this weekend? We would like to help. Help yourself first, though. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 888-666-3974 because we are here to provide that do-it-yourself solution or to give you some advice on how to get a pro to get the job done right the first time. Coming up on today's show, do you some of your meals come out sort of half-baked? Well, don't blame the cook, just blame the oven. Oven temperatures can vary, and we're going to teach you how to identify and fix that problem the easy way. And also ahead, does your garbage disposer jam a lot? Well, don't replace it. We're going to tell you how to clear disposer jams easily and, most importantly, safely. Plus, we've got advice on how you can update some boring cabinets and drawer fronts by dressing them up with fabric. And this hour, we're giving away a 27-foot magnetic tape measure. It's worth 18 bucks, and one lucky winner is going to get it for free. So pick up the phone right now. The number is one eight 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 Money Pit eight 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 six 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 three nine seven four. Right, Mark in Maine is on the line with an electrical question. How can we help you today? Uh, yes, I have a, a couple of rooms. Our, our uh, house is from around the nineteen thirties, and um, some of the rooms, the three way wiring isn't quite right. Like uh, to turn on the light as you enter the room. Um, you turn on one switch. You can't go to the other side of the room where the other switch is and turn the light off. You have to go back to the original switch, turn the light off, oh. and you can use it. <laughs> okay. So do you know that it was it was originally designed to be a three-way switch? I do not know that. Listen, you're going to have to have an electrician open up the wiring and, and test it, trace it out, and try to figure out what's going on. It's, it's either that a switch has gone bad or, more likely, um, it's just not hooked up correctly. Okay. Okay. Now, I had been told that there are switches that are specific to three-way, and that is probably the problem. But I'm, to be honest, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's that's entirely possible, but it's got to be opened up and, and take a look at what switch device is in there and then also determine if it's wired correctly because it sounds like most likely it was incorrectly wired. It might have been that somebody, you know, replaced one of those switches at one time and just hooked it up wrong. Okay. I mean, I've done that myself uh, just inadvertently. When I was painting, I recall, I took a switch apart to replace it from a toggle switch to a decor switch. That's the kind of flat panel kind. Okay. And I and I swore that I had gone wire for wire and got it right, but I didn't. I got it wrong, and it did exactly that. So I had to uh, reverse some wires to get it working back again. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I, I got some uh, research to do. All right. Well, good luck with that project, Mark. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Now we've got Joyce in Alabama on the line who's got a question about a sink odor. What's going on? Well, this is in a bathroom sink. It's about uh, 25 years old. It's a type that has three air vent holes in it or overflow holes in it. And the odor seems to be emanating primarily from there. It's a very musty odor. And I came down to that conclusion because I finally took some paper and stuffed up those holes and things smelled much better in the bathroom that way. Well, sometimes what happens is you'll get some uh, bacteria that will grow in that overflow trap. So what I would suggest you do is this. That is to fill the sink up with hot water and add some bleach to it. And let the bleach very slowly trickle over that overflow. And so it saturates it, and hopefully that will kill that mold or that bacteria. Now, the other thing that you can do is you can take the bathroom sink trap apart and clean it out with a bottle brush. Now, some of the 
traps today are just plastic. They're easy to unscrew and put back together. Under the sink, sometimes you can clean that. And again, you get that, that biogas that forms in there. If you clean it with a bleach solution, that usually makes things smell a lot better in the bathroom. Okay, Joyce? All right. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Now I've got Gary in New York on the line who's got a question about a new roof. How can we help you with that? Back in 2011, uh, down here in Binghamton, New York, we had had uh, a flood hit pretty bad. And we had thought that part of the storm that rolled through had damaged our roof. Turns out that the insurance company found out that the the roof tiles weren't installed correctly. I guess they had uh, tacked them in too high and with too much... uh, PSI, I guess, with the, the air hammer or whatever, and had blown through them. So we had a patch actually sliding down, um, which we paid to have fixed. Uh, it was uh, probably about 350 400 bucks to have it patched. And now, a couple of years later, um, we have another patch that's very close to the original patch job that's starting to slide down as well. And I've never really looked into getting a new roof. I was kind of curious um, what you guys might have for advice for me. So Gary, the old roof is a standard asphalt shingle roof? I believe so, yeah. Because when you say tile that slid down, I think you're just saying, that you explain that the shingles slid down. Yes. So Gary, at this point, you just want to figure out the best way to replace that existing asphalt shingle roof, correct? Well, one of the questions me and my wife had been discussing is the last time we paid to have this patched, where we had the problem where a large portion was sliding down, then we paid like three fifty, four hundred bucks, and it lasted about three, four years before we saw any other problems. Um, what we're curious about is there's probably about I think it was um, we figured out about nine years left on the the life of the roof from when it was installed, and we were curious if we should just keep patching it at three, four hundred bucks a year, or at three hundred, three, four hundred bucks every couple of years, or if we could just go ahead and get a whole new roof. How long are you going to be in the house? Uh, if we win the lottery, I'm not moving unless they heckle me too much. <laughs> so you intend to be in this for most of the life of the roof, of whether it's the existing one or a new one? We're looking at staying in this house for pretty much as long as we live. Well, I mean, if it's 300 bucks and it's going to last you three or four years and you got to do it once in a while, I might be okay with patching. But I guess if I had to do that time and time again, then I would start thinking about a new roof. And if I was going to do a new roof, I would remove the old roof right down to the uh, roof sheathing and then re-roof uh, from there. It's not a good idea to, to put a second layer on top of the existing layer. First of all, the second layer never lasts as long because the first layer holds a lot of heat. Plus, you already got attachment problems with that first layer. So you wouldn't want to compound it by putting uh, more roofing shingles on top of that. So I guess I'd be tempted to do it once or twice, but after that, I'd, I'd be ready for a new roof. Okay. Um, I guess the other question that I had had in regards to this is um, about a year or two after we had the past job done, uh, we had had insulation uh, put into the attic, and um, that cost us a pretty penny to get done because uh, we had, uh, I think it was R30 insulation installed, and they had the sister out, the joists on the rafters and everything. And since then, we hadn't noticed any water infiltrating, but we just put up drywall inside the attic as well. Is there any way to check and see if there's water infiltration? Well, if there's water infiltration, you're going to see it, especially if you have drywall, because it's going to stain. So if you're not seeing it, then I wouldn't expect that you're getting any leakage. And um, 
considering we're in upstate New York, uh, do we have to worry about uh, the weather? Like, when when should we get the roof redone if we choose to do so? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a good idea to do it midwinter, obviously, but any the any other time of the year, it's it's fine. One of the things that you might want to consider when you do redo the roof, because you are in upstate New York, is to make sure that you have ice and water shield installed. This is an additional layer of roofing material that goes from the edge of the roof up three or four feet into the roof structure. And it's specifically designed so that if you get an ice dam where ice forms at the gutter line uh, and then the snow above that starts to melt, that water is not going to hit the dam and back up into the house. And because you're going to pull the old shingles off, it's the perfect opportunity to do that. And you know what, Gary? Here's a tip from somebody who just had their roof redone last summer. Um Get yourself one of those nail magnets. It's like a big magnet on a stick that you kind of wander around your backyard with because I swear we still find nails in the backyard. (laughs) They show up at like the most random times and the most random places. So no matter how well your guys look, there's still going to be more. And also, if you're going to be at home at all during this project, try to get out because let me tell you, being in your home, I had a little guy, you know, a a youngish baby at the time. Charlie was only like six months. It was the loudest, most unnerving thing to deal with. The sound of people on your roof and hammers. and It's like being awake during surgery. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're under attack. Like, we just had to get the heck out of the house. So it's like, try to make plans to not be around. All right, Gary. I hope that helps you out. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. You are tuned to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show on air and online at moneypit.com. Now, you can call in your home repair, your home improvement question, pretty much any hour of the day that you were working on it or that question pops into your mind. We're here to give you a hand at 888-MONEY-PIT. 888-666-3974. Up next, does your oven temperature seem to be a bit off? Maybe those culinary masterpieces are just not working out as you planned? Well, the reason might be the thermostat. We'll tell you how to fix it next. You live in a money pit. Did you know that Americans take 20,000 breaths a day and spend an average of 90% of their time indoors? That's right. And according to the EPA, the level of indoor air pollutants can be two to five times higher than outdoor air and occasionally more than 100 times higher. Plus, every spring we get socked with allergens, too. Well, Air Doctor is an air purifier that filters out dangerous contaminants like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold. Their Ultra HEPA filter has been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested allergens, including bacteria and viruses. That's impressive. Now, Air Doctor also comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus the shipping. And they're offering a special discount to Money Pit listeners. Just head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you'll also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock this special offer in right now by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-Pro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code MONEYPIT. Money Pit. 
Where home solutions live, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Give us a call right now. We want to hear your decor dilemma. We want to hear your home improvement project. We want to talk about that project that's keeping you up late at night. Why did you paint the leak stain and it came through? (laughs) Why does your basement leak? Why are you so cold all the time? These and many more topics we can tackle and solve for you if you just help yourself by calling us at 888-MONEY-PIT. You might even win this hour's prize. We're giving away a fancy magnetic tape measure that measures 25 feet long, and it's worth about 18 bucks. Going to toss that out to one caller drawn at random. The number again is one eight 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 money pit Penny in Illinois is on the line, and she's dealing with some frost on a meter. Tell us what's going on in your money pit. Well, we have a brand new home, and the outside is where like the meter is and stuff like that. Well, cold air gets in that little pipe area and then comes in through the basement and puts up patch of frost on the wall in the basement downstairs. And I was wondering if there was anything I can do to put something over that gas meter to protect it from getting so cold. You don't have to worry about the gas meter getting being protected because gas meters are meant to be outside in all sorts of, of weather. That said, though, if you're getting that kind of cold air in your basement, that's got to be causing you big energy losses. So I would try to seal those spaces where that cold air is getting in to try to keep that space as warm as possible because that is going to add to your heating costs. Okay, but I talked to the builder and he said you really can't do anything inside because then you're looking at a fire fire hazard. Like if you try to insulate inside, then there could be a, a fire hazard there. What, in the basement with basement wall insulation? I was thinking like by where the gas meter was. That's what I kind of... Well, but again, you don't have to worry about the gas meter that said, you can insulate and you can you can add insulation to exterior walls, and you certainly can add insulation near near a gas meter. It's not <laughs> it's not like it's a source of flame. Okay, it's a piece of equipment where, through which all the plumbing passes. But I mean, it's not like it, there's a there's a flame there. So if your builder is telling you that, it sounds to me like he's trying to get out of a project. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate right, your Penny. help on that. All right. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at eight eight eight. Money pit. Tell that guy to get to work. I will. (laughs) So have you been wondering why you get such inconsistent results for your oven-baked culinary masterpieces? Well, if your baked dishes don't come out right every time, don't blame the chef, guys. Blame the oven. Now, it's possible that your oven's built-in thermostat just isn't working the way it should be. So here's some troubleshooting advice that may restore your confidence in the kitchen and, quite frankly, your cooking abilities. (laughs) First off, it's a really good idea to check your thermostat for accuracy. Now, I used to do this in the years I was a professional home inspector, and it's really a simple procedure. You set the oven temperature to about 350 degrees, and then you put a separate thermometer inside. You'll often see oven thermometers uh, sold at the... uh, supermarkets and places like that. Uh, I think that you don't have to get a real expensive one here. It's kind of like getting a second opinion on the temperature. But if you put that uh, on the rack, set it to 350, leave it there for 10, 15 minutes, and then check it, you'll get a pretty good idea as to whether or not your thermostat is actually giving you an accurate result. If it's not, it might need some attention. So what could be wrong there? Now, there are several possibilities. 
over time, that rubber gasket around the oven door, that can become torn or stretched out of shape or just deformed in general. And that's going to cause heat to escape from the oven. So first off, inspect the gaskets, make sure they're in good condition and still doing their job. And if they're not, replace them. And another way that heat can escape from your oven is if that oven door is not closing properly. So you want to check uh, the alignment on the door to make sure it's closing evenly and forms a nice tight seal. If it doesn't, you want to check for broken or bent door hinges. That can happen, uh, especially if you've got kids. Sometimes when you have a gar- uh, an oven door open, I've seen kids really pressed down on that or even people uh, that are maybe setting some dishes or plates or heavy roasts on that. It can stretch it out of place. So these can all be repaired pretty inexpensively. But if you don't get it just right, you're not going to get a consistent temperature out of that oven. And finally, clean your oven. Uh, A dirty oven is not going to be an accurate oven. And if you do clean your oven, though, always do it uh, not when you're expecting to cook a big meal the next day because it does put the oven through a lot of stress. That self-cleaning cycle uh, drives those temperatures up really, really high. You know, do it when uh, using the oven the next day is not going to be sort of a mission critical operation. Like, you know, don't do it before Thanksgiving or a big holiday or something like that. But uh, do it midweek. Uh, when you got some time to kill, if it's uh, if it's cold, you know, do it at night. It'll throw some additional heat uh, into the house at, at the same time. Jody in Delaware, you've got the money pit. How can we help you today? I actually have a problem with my foundation. It's an exposed foundation, about three feet high around the whole footprint of the house is exposed. It's a cement block foundation that had parging on it originally. And the parging was cracking, so it was recommended by a masonry contractor to put dry lock over it. So this is what I did. I put um, it's a it, they they add color to the dry lock. So I put it over the whole foundation, and it started to crack and peel and bubble. Yeah, you didn't adhere properly. First of all, isn't dry lock usually an interior uh, masonry paint, not an exterior masonry paint? Well, this particular masonry guy told me that he's actually used it on the bottom of swimming pools. So he thought that it would work. And when, when he saw it later, he said, wow, I've never seen it do that. Yeah. How about that? Just experimenting <laughs> with your house. I did call the dry lock people, too. Yeah. And talk to them. And they, they told me to try to power wash it, try scraping it. But it's just become like a huge mess. You know, I mean, it peels in some places, some places it adhered. Yeah. The problem is that now that you've got that on there, you've got to get it off because you can't put any, you can't put new stuff over the bad old stuff. It just will continue to peel. Yeah. The problem is, is that uh, we are on um, filled in marshland is where the, is where the, and so we're on clay and, clay and sand. And the cement block, you know, it sort of leaches up through there. So it's always sort of ha- sort of damp coming up from the ground anyway. Yeah, that's what I was going to, th- that's what I was kind of thinking. I was thinking the block wall might have been wet when you applied it. It might have been visibly wet, but see, those block walls are hydroscopic. They absorb water really, really well. And so if you, if it's on a moist situation, that water is going to draw up, get behind that paint, and nothing causes paint to peel faster than, than water. So unfortunately, at this stage, you're going to have to strip that off. Oh my gosh! And we're right on. We're right on the water. You know, what I mean, we're on the bay. So I'm always worried about things that are not environmentally friendly. The other thing that I think you probably could do, and this is a you know, this is a big job in and of itself, though, is you could have a mason attach um, a woven wire mesh to that foundation and restucco it. And in that case. It could go right on top of the old junky paint because you're not really sticking to the foundation. You're sticking to the mesh. So that's another possibility. I gotcha. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I guess in some places that was used before underneath the parging. Well, the parging the parging is simply a stucco coat that goes on top of the block wall, and it's typical for the parging to crack, and usually it cracks along the lines of the of the of the masonry block. Yep, that's what it did. And that's not necessarily a defect. That's pretty much just the way it goes with that stuff, especially if they don't put it on thick enough. So I would consider, if you really want to have it to look like a traditional masonry foundation, I would consider having mesh put up there and then properly restuccoed. If not, you're just going to have to peel that paint off any way you can. You would, you, I would might take a look at some of the citrus-based uh, paint strippers if you have some that's really hard to get off. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Sorry to have better news. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888-MONEYPIT. Do the appliances in your home have the most updated energy standards? Maybe not. Federal law requires that energy standards are met and upgraded as needed. We're going to tell you about the changes to the efficiency of boilers and ceiling fans and furnaces next. Everyone should know that drinking water is important to staying hydrated and healthy. Having safe, clean water is the last thing you want to worry about, but unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants right in its tap water. That's why we are thrilled to be working with AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. It removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and is specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAs in your water supply. And they have water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. They even have a Wi-Fi-connected purifier and mineral boost options. And its proprietary purification technology is independently tested by IATMO to NSF and ANSI standards to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAs known as forever chemicals, nitrate, and many more. I can truly taste the difference when I compare it with my old water filter. AquaTrue saves you money also. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That's less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you'll save the environment from tons of plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and even makes a great gift. And today, Money Pit listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to aquatrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code MONEYPIT at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to aquatrue.com and use promo code M-O-N-E-Y-P-I-T. MONEYPIT. The Money Pit is brought to you by Lutron's new Maestro Occupancy Sensing Switch. Never ask, who left the lights on again? Starting at around $20, this motion-sensing light switch turns the lights on automatically when you walk into a room and off when you leave and works with all types of light bulbs. Learn more at LutronSensors.com. Making good homes better. Welcome back to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Well, we've all heard about energy-efficient standards. You've heard us talk about the government designations like Energy Star. But do you know how those standards are determined, how they're regulated, and how they're kept up to date so that you have access to truly 
the most efficient appliances on the market? Well, here to tell us about that is Lauren Urbanic, the Senior Energy Policy Advocate for the Natural Resources Defense Council. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for having me. So, Lauren, this is your business, so we're really happy that you could join us today because, you know, I've seen manufacturers toss words around like Energy Star, but you know, one Energy Star appliance doesn't necessarily equal the other Energy Star appliance. It really depends on which standard they're building that appliance to. So tell us how those programs came to be and how consumers can use them effectively to make good decisions on energy efficient equipment in their home. Absolutely. You can't look at the appliances or the equipment in your home and really easily tell if they're wasting energy. So in 1987, President Reagan signed a law into effect that established minimum efficiency levels for a whole variety of products to really ensure that they're using energy in the the smartest possible way. So since then, efficiency standards have been created and also updated for more than 60 product categories, which include most of the appliances and most of the equipment in your home. And so thanks to efficiency standards, it actually costs the average household about $300 less each year to operate their their major appliances. So let's talk about those efficiency standards. Um, I mentioned earlier Energy Star. Is that the only standard that consumers need to be aware of? The standards set the requirement for energy efficiency. So any product on the market that's covered by an efficiency standard has to meet that standard. But there are some products that perform even better than the standard, and that's where the Energy Star label comes into play. And you've probably seen it. It's a blue label with a white star. Having that label, that Energy Star label, signifies that a product is in the the top tier of energy efficiency. So we can truly then compare apples to apples as long as it has the Energy Star label. And I would also add that the appliances are uh, sort of the same manufacturing year, right? So because those standards are going to change from from sometimes from year to year or every couple of years, if you're comparing it, it's got to be current product, correct? If you're comparing products, another really good tool to look at is the energy guide label. That's the, the yellow label that you may have seen as you've shopped for products like refrigerators or water heaters or dishwashers. And this provides a really good way to, to compare appliances whether or not they actually have the Energy Star label, but it, it provides information about annual energy use and and helps consumers make smart energy decisions. So which appliances in our homes really do use the most energy? The big three are your heating equipment, your cooling equipment, and your water heaters. Those make up more than half, actually, of your, your home's energy use. So if a, a homeowner is looking for improvements that are going to really give you the most bang for your buck, those are really great places to start. And you find that that's where really people are saving the most money? Or are there even you know smaller changes that you can make that are also Energy Star rated that could save some money as well? There are absolutely smaller changes that, that a homeowner could make. It really just depends on your individual home where you'll be able to, to save the most energy and save the most money. We always recommend starting actually with an energy audit, which is where a contractor will come into your home, do some diagnostic testing, and provide you with a really comprehensive report that's customized for your home about where your home has the most potential for energy savings, and especially for cost-effective energy savings. Do you have any advice for consumers that want to calculate return on investment for energy-saving appliances? Because the more energy they save, sometimes the more expensive they are. 
how do you determine whether or not it actually makes economic sense? I mean, we all want to save some energy and help the planet along, but let's face it, if it's coming directly out of our pocketbook, it's a whole other set of standards we apply. How do we determine what the return on investment is for these types of uh, more expensive but more efficient appliances? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I would recommend really taking a look at that energy guide label. That will provide some information at least on an average basis of what the energy consumption will be, what the, the estimated average cost will be. But one thing to note about energy efficiency standards is that, by law, those have to be cost-effective for both consumers and for manufacturers. So if you do buy a, a new piece of equipment, it, it may cost a little more, but any extra upfront cost will be then recouped in savings on your energy bill. Yeah, and not to mention that there are still tax rebates and even rebates from your local utility company that can kick in as well and help offset that uh, initial investment. I was looking recently at the pretty new heat pump uh, dryers that are out there. They're new high-efficiency dryers that give you better efficiency than straight electric dryers. And pretty expensive to look at them uh, initially, but when you consider the fact that you can get the tax credit uh, and the rebates uh, from your local utilities, it really brings that number down and makes it much more affordable and and practical to buy them. Absolutely. The, The rebates that are available for many utilities across the country could be both for equipment, like you were talking about, but also for energy audits and possibly other upgrades like installing insulation, doing some air sealing around windows or in cracks that that homeowners may not even know are there. So that's absolutely a great place to start. Great advice. Lauren Urbanik, she's a senior policy advocate for Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you so much for stopping by the Money Pit. Thanks for having me. And if you'd like to learn more information about the work of the Natural Resources Defense Council, you can visit them online at nrdc.org. All right, still to come, a garbage disposer installed in the sink can be very convenient to have in your kitchen. But what happens when it jams? We're going to have some tips on keeping your disposer running smoothly when the Money Pit continues. You live in a Money Pit. Making good homes better. Welcome back to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Give us a call at 888-MONEY-PIT. We will help you with whatever you're working on at your Money Pit. Plus, we have a super handy prize up for grabs that if you don't have one, quite frankly, I don't know how you're doing any DIY projects in your house. We're giving away a magnetic tape measure. It's a 25-footer. It's super awesome. you got to have a good heavy-duty tape whenever you're tackling any project and quite frankly, on your hip daily, just so you know how far things are away from you at a moment's notice. Surprise worth $18, but one of you gets it for free. Give us a call at 888-MONEY-PIT. 888-666-3974. Kirk in North Dakota is on the line with a lighting question. What's going on? So I got a quick question on fluorescent lights. You know, a lot of your uh, lights are, of course, rated, you know, 60 watts, etc. So my question kind of came in the fact that on the fluorescent bulb, it says, this is equal to a 60-watt bulb. But sometimes it's just not enough light. So what happens? Or are you allowed to put a bigger bulb wattage? Because since fluorescents are supposed to be taking elect- less electricity, can a guy put a bigger bulb in there in a fluorescence that says equals to 100 watts because it's still drawing less electricity? So I think what you're talking about here is compact fluorescence, Kirk. Right. So the wattage limitations on fixtures is based on a calculation that involves incandescent bulbs, and it, and it, because it's because it equates to heat. You know, a 100-watt bulb is going to uh, 
uh, emit a certain amount of heat, and uh, the fixture's rated to take that heat. That's that's what it's rated for, and you can't put more than that. When it comes to fluorescence, you're only using a quarter of the energy. So a 15-watt bulb would deliver you, deliver the same equivalent of 60 watts of light. You can have a bulb that delivers the equivalent of a bigger watt bulb, but you're still not actually putting that amount of electricity into it. Does that make sense? Right. So you could actually, like you say, if it's a third, if it's rated for a 60-watt incandescent bulb, you could virtually say if there was a 150-watt bulb in a fluorescent, you should be able to put that in there and not cause an overload and get more light out of that same fixture. Yeah, I probably wouldn't double it. <laughs> but I might, if it calls for a 60, I might go up to 100 because then you're moving from saying 15 watts to 25. But I have a better suggestion. Forget the compact fluorescence. They are an outdated technology. The LED bulbs it's, are where it's at today. They, they deliver a much better quality light with uh, just the same, if not more, savings. But you know, that was the whole issue is sometimes you just don't get enough light out of some of those fixtures. Right. And I think that if, right, and also they're very temperature sensitive if it's a cold area. like Well, and then they're color sensitive as well. You know, when you get a CFL, you have to pick what color temperature you want that bulb to feel, and they can all feel extremely different. So you might pick something that gives a cold, harsh light, and you want something warmer. So there's a lot of experimenting with what type of fluorescent bulb you're going to get. We'll have to try some different things, but I was just worried about the wattage and making sure I didn't overheat the uh, original fixture. No, you're smart. You're smart to be concerned, but I I take a look at the LEDs, and I think once you start trying them, you'll be you'll be disposing of those CFLs. Well, thank you very much for taking my call. I appreciate you're it. You're very welcome. Good luck with that project. Well, garbage disposers are a modern kitchen marvel. Food scraps get ground up and flushed down the drain. But you need to be careful what you put in there. When that disposer runs, it can often jam, and that will automatically shut it off. And it might not restart when you flip the wall switch. Yeah, but every garbage disposer has a way to clear those jams. Now, there may be a reset button located on the bottom of the unit. It's usually very small and often red or black. So get a flashlight and look under the unit. If you see a button, push it. Before that, though, try to clear the debris from the unit itself. Now, you also could have a unit with a manual operation that comes with a key or kind of like an Allen wrench that allows you to turn the blades from underneath to clear the jam. It's a little hard to see, but if you get under that disposer and look up right in the middle of it, you'll find like an Allen bolt and you stick the wrench in there and twist it until the jam is cleared, then take it out and start it up and you're good to go. Now, you just have to remember one thing, guys. You have to use your disposer as your directed to. So no big or pulpy material in there, guys, and it'll run great. That's right. 888-666-3974. Let's get back to those calls. Leslie, who's next? Jen in Iowa, you've got the money pit. How can we help you today? Yeah, um, my commode is about five years old, and it got clogged. I tried vinegar and baking soda, um, liquid plumber, plunging it out, anything else I could think of, because I really did not want to snake it with the rusty snake that I had, because I knew what I was going to do. Well, after three days... I finally snaked it and got the clog out, but now I've got all these scrapes with rust in the, the, the bottom of the toilet bowl that cannot be removed. Okay, and you're sure they're actual scrapes or scratches and not just a rust marking? Um, I think so. I've tried to scrub it with a toilet brush and, and um, you know, a toilet bowl cleaner. And, and as today when I heard your show and you were talking about um, don't, to some other guy, don't, use anything abrasive, 
to remove the surface off of the um, inside of the commode, like, and you suggested to him polishing compound and something else, but be very diligent. And then right then I thought, uh-oh, well, I messed up because I have totally interrupted the surface. Let's see if we can pull you back from the, from the brink here. So you are correct. Um, it's not a polishing compound. It's a rubbing compound. It's uh, you. It's used uh, mostly for auto body work, but it's mildly abrasive, and it can remove those stains. There are also some cleansing products that work well, right, Leslie? Yeah, Barkeeper's Friend, which is sort of like a mild abrasive, that tends to work very well on a porcelain surface that does have smaller scratches in it. I mean, I don't know how bad your scratches are, but it's worth a try. You may want to drain the toilet out first just to give you some more ease in actually getting to the scratched area, but not 100% necessary, although it does help if you sort of rub it in and then let it sit on. Yeah, I would turn the water off to the toilet bowl and flush it and so that the bowl is fairly dry or fairly empty. Uh, this way you can kind of let that sit on there for a while and, and, and really do go and really go to work. And then you could uh, rinse it off. So give that a shot and let us know how you do. Thank you so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Okay, thank you so much. Hey, are you tired of looking at those same boring cabinets? Well, why not dress them up with fabric? Going to tell you how after this. You live in a Money Pit. Making good homes better, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. And hey, you might still be feeling the chill, but in a few weeks, spring will officially be here. Hooray! We're going to give you some ideas on what you should be doing in spring to get your Money Pit ready when you check out our spring project list on the homepage at moneypit.com. All right, and even though the calendar says spring, it might not feel like spring everywhere, but we're with you in mind, spring. Come on, Mother Nature, bring us some nice weather so we can get projects done. Now, I've got a post here from Loretta who writes, We just installed vinyl plank flooring throughout our home. Which rug mats or rugs are safe for vinyl plank? We've heard that some mats and rugs can cause permanent stains, which is true. The only one that I would be concerned about would be anything that's rubber-backed. I mean, typically you get complaints where you put one of those rubber-backed carpet mats uh, in front of the kitchen sink or in the bathroom, uh, and then people will pull it up and it'll be sort of dirty and yellow looking underneath and think it's a stain. It's not. It's a chemical reaction. So if you stay away from that type of uh, of area rug, I don't think you're going to have any problems. Yeah, Loretta, if you're concerned about, you know, a rubber-backed carpet, you might want to also look for something that if you're concerned that there could be like a color transfer in addition to a chemical reaction, look for some that are labeled color fast. The other thing you can look at are woven area rugs or even jute rugs, which some of them have like a harder feel, like almost a scratchy feeling. But my concern there is that they're going to be slippery on the vinyl flooring. So you can use carpet tape. That'll help hold the rug in place. You just want to make sure that it doesn't react with the floor as well. And so you might want to try that in an area that's out of sight. But that will keep the rug in place so that nobody slips and falls, which is a big hazard. Well, if you're tired of old cabinets or furniture but don't have the budget to replace them, you can change the look completely with some decorative fabric panels. It's not a difficult project, and Leslie's got the step-by-step in this week's edition of Leslie's Last Word. 
Leslie? Yeah, you know, decorative panels, if you make them with fabric or paper, it can really be a simple and affordable change to really update an outdated kitchen or even a tired piece of furniture. So you want to cut hardboard panels to cover a portion of the door or the drawer front, and then you wrap them up with your favorite fabric or patterned paper, and that's going to create a standout focal point and even just add texture to your design scheme. The first step, though, you've got to figure out what panel sizes you need. Then measure and cut them from the quarter-inch hardboard. Cut your fabric or paper two inches wider all around the piece of hardboard. This way you have an area to wrap around so you get nice, clean edges. And when you get to the corners, depending on if you're working with fabric or paper, you want to kind of figure out a way that wraps it so you get nice, smooth corners and it doesn't bump it out too much from the front of the cabinet. Now, when you get to the finished part, once you've got everything smooth and beautiful, if you're using fabric, you might want to iron the front or steam it out just to get everything nice and crisp. And once you've got it the way you're really liking it, you can go ahead and either staple it onto the front of the cabinet door or glue it on with construction adhesive or screw it on from the backside. It really depends on what you're working with. But that's going to make a huge change. Now, if you're updating a piece of furniture or even a whole room with this decorative panel project, you can go ahead then and have fun accessorizing all of your new masterpieces with new hardware. And you can shop a great range of handles and knobs and pulls at your local home center I also like to look at Anthropology. It's kind of a girly clothing store, but they have beautiful, really unique hardware pieces. They're a little bit on the pricey side, but if you're just doing a small piece of furniture, it might be a great opportunity to make something stand out. And you can find something really beautiful, and you'll update something that would have been tremendously expensive in a really affordable way. Great advice. This is the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. And coming up next time on the program, if your furnace is shot or you just want a more efficient upgrade, a brand new furnace should never be an impulse buy. But too often, that is exactly what does happen, especially if your furnace gives out in the middle of winter. So we're going to have some tips on how you can shop furnaces the smart way on the next edition of The Money Pit. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone.